You're listening to The Real Witches of the End Times, transmissions straight from the underworld. Doom witches, blood wizards, underworld accountants, and cloud people. Welcome back to the Real Witches of the End Times podcast. I'm your host, Mana Aylin. This week, I have my new friend, Michaela Ann. Some of you may know of them as Saturn Vox. Michaela and I actually tried to record an interview before today, and we didn't think much about it at the time, the day we scheduled it, and it was the day of the solar eclipse. Very smart. <laughs> yeah, very smart. <laughs> We tried to record it. We, we recorded actually a whole episode ap- after where we both felt kind of weird about it. Um, and then when I tried to even download the audio, it didn't work. And it was hilarious because we were making jokes on, on Messenger before about how our computers might explode. <laughs> it almost happened that way. I like to, uh, we are both first house Geminis during a Gemini solar eclipse while Mercury is in retrograde in Gemini. So, of course, the technology failed. And naturally, of course, with those placements, we assumed that we would not be affected. (laughs) Naturally. Yeah, naturally. (laughs) I've always been able to talk my way out of anything. Why would that not apply to technology malfunctions? Yes. That's what my brain thinks. First house Gemini feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are doing a redo today on a date we also did not think about ahead of time. This is the uh, summer solstice that we plan for our next one, but the energy seems to be a lot more chill um, and more fun, I would say. Yeah, this day isn't known for being auspiciously doomful. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one thing that we really got into last time and wasn't even the full intention of the episode, but I would actually love to switch gears and talk about now is Michaela's experience with the Kabbalah and background with that. I know that's a a system that people are very, very confused about. I know, like, I really don't know anything about it other than like bits and pieces that have come up at particular times in my life. Like, I'm not someone that could explain it very well at all. Um, but you, you have it in your bio. Yeah. So Kabbalah is actually where if I, I mean, I guess this isn't exactly true because of course I read Raven Silverwolf's How to Ride a Silver Broomstick when I was 16. So maybe that was my introduction (laughs) to witchcraft. But when I, when I really started to take it seriously, I would say like occult philosophy seriously I started down the Kabbalistic wormhole and it's partially because of weird Hermes synchronicities and partially because I am ancestrally Jewish so it it's like an ancestral practice as well as just a system of belief that I have. Even though I am ancestrally Jewish, uh, I was actually raised Catholic, and I went to Catholic school for most of my life, and I only bring that up to say, like, I was always really religious, but as I started, like, developing my mind, I started to realize, actually, this religion makes no sense, 
but I wasn't like ready to be atheist. I still like kind of believed in something. So I wore that agnostic label for a while. I went to college for philosophy and world religions where I specialized in Buddhism, but Buddhism still also didn't feel quite right. Like there were a lot of things that I loved about it, but other things that I just wasn't so sure was right for my path basically. And so when I first picked up a book on Kabbalah, the thing that have, kind of did it for me was just being like, oh, wow, this is the one. This is the thing that makes sense both intellectually and spiritually to where I can fulfill both of those sides of me, the part of me that needs and desires to have some sort of religious foundation, but also the part of me that's like rational and a, and a logical thinker and needs that, you know, what I would say current modern, most modern religions do not have. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's how I've come into a lot of particular things in my practice too, that have stuck around because there's that like inner knowing of what makes sense to you for sure. Yep. And you know, you could say that that is because it's ancestrally connected. Like it's quite probable that I had ancestors who were Kabbalists at some point in the lineage, you know? Um, but I mean, if you even look at the way that Kabbalah has infiltrated hermeticism and how like the golden dawn kind of took both and melded it into what we now call ceremonial magic. I think there is something to be said about people who are not Jewish, who learn about Kabbalah and are like, no, this makes sense. Like it works. There's something about it that I think touches people regardless of what what god you worship i guess if that makes sense do you think i know this is going to be a difficult question just for the amount of information um to condense it down but if someone had never heard of kabbalah before how would you explain it to them so i think that the best way to describe what it is is it's basically a bunch of filing cabinets um that you can basically break down all of the bits and pieces of the world, both manifest and unmanifest, and put it into one of these 10 or really 32 different filing cabinets. And by doing that, you're able to see more clearly how every aspect of our reality whether it is the physical reality or it's the dream reality or if it's just the reality of being in love or the reality of trying to rationalize something all of these things can be put into a different sphere put into a different filing cabinet and then we can know the through these things, we can learn to know and understand the one true God, as well as know and understand that we all 
are a part of that being, that hermaphroditic being, I really want to stress, like, when I say once you're grad, I feel like people are like, oh, that Abrahamic bullshit, but I'm really talking about, like, source itself, from which Mm -hmm. everything is birthed, and that's why it is, it does work cross-religion, because, like, for Jews, of course, that would be Yahweh, but I know plenty of, I mean, let, you know, OTO people who use Kabbalah, they have Egyptian deities that they put over the same system, but they work with the spheres, you know, they compartmentalize these things in the same way. So it's basically a a category system that allows you to both do practical magic, because like, for example, if I know that I'm doing a Mars spell, like a Gavora spell, then I would want to like use the filing cabinet and say what animals are in that filing cabinet. And then I can use materia from those animals, what plant spirits are Gavoric, you know, and then I can call on maybe uh, five because five is the number of Gavora. So I would call on maybe five different animal and plant spirits to come aid in that working. And so it helps as a practical magician too. I think why magicians have latched onto it so much because you, it does make writing your own spells and thinking about magic for your own self and how it works instead of just, you know, reading a book and being told do A, B, C. That makes a lot of sense to explain it as the filing cabinets. I don't think I'd heard that that metaphor before. Um, what what I think of them a lot of as like little toolboxes, which is a very similar thing. Um, yes, they're both, exactly. Um, those are both metaphors that imply there being a sense of utility in which the user chooses what it is they need for said project. There's like a sense of like autonomy within a contained um, set of I don't know, symbols? I don't know what to call it. Um, energies? Yeah, they're, they're symbols. And it, I mean, the energies and the symbol is the same thing, I think, in some ways. But yeah, it's basically like, these are aspects in Kabbalah, they, they would be called emanations. So mm-hmm. the idea is that like, I am so the one great unknowable being of whom we cannot speak of or, or even contemplate because to do so would be paradoxical, I guess, is the best way to describe. Uh, it, it reflects itself into the, the ten sephirah. And so they are basically like if you look in, into a mirror, if you, if you step into a funhouse, Ein Sof is the image that's being like reflected in all of the different funhouse mirrors. It's not actually the thing. It's the reflected emanation, the reflected energy of that thing. And it's slightly, one one is slightly distorted because the mirror was wavy. And one is like, maybe the energy now looks thinner because this mirror is like, I don't know what they do to make those mirrors different shapes, but you get where I'm going with this, right? Mm-hmm. Have you seen Peter Moerbacher's art? Yes. Oh, love Peter Moorbacher. I have his um, Sephira tarot deck or oracle oh. deck, really. Is it the Angel Arium deck? 
Yes, the Angelarium. I have that too. Yeah, that is um, what I was thinking of because that was my first ever real depiction of any of the emanations that I ever saw was the various cards. Like there's a lot of angels in there, but there's a representation of the main um, emanations or branches of, of the tree of life or the Kabbalah tree of life, which is what you are referring to. Yes, and what I love too about that deck and the way that he uh, de- depicts each of the Sephira is he also gives... It's almost like you're playing Yu-Gi-Oh! And what's the name of that god that Yugi gets to make? And he's like, you need all seven pieces to raise the ancient god or whatever. <laughs> he's like, I've got the left eye and I've got the right eye and I've got the arm and the leg. Uh, but each of the Sephira are related to a different body part in that mm-hmm. deck. And it's good also to remember that because a part of the Kabbalistic teaching and another reason why it's very similar to Hermeticism or why the the two work well together, um, even though the Kabbalists don't have an as well-known slogan, but it's basically as above, so below. So the universe is structured light through the tree of life but my physical self and my soul being are also the tree of life also works as a blueprint of how of me and the powers that I have and my creative ability and like also whatever is found within the deity can be found within me as well are there people who practice medical kabbalah don't know. I don't want to say no, but I do not think so. It's not like with astrology where one could say, oh, you know, um, your son, you have an affliction in your son, and so you might be likely to have problems with your eyes, you know, but or I'm sorry, your heart is what the sun is related to. Uh, but Kabbalah, I don't know of anybody that uses Kabbalah in that way. Um, most people that I know, what they would use Kabbalah for if they're not using it as like a theological contemplation, like if we're just using it as a magician, besides like spell working, what I said earlier. Mm -hmm. Anytime that you call on the names of God, anytime you've heard of that, the, uh, like the Book of Solomon does a lot of that, but there are also older grimoires that do similar things. Those names of God invoking the names of God to create a practical change in the world is a form of Kabbalistic magic. And then on a meditative level, there's also the idea of sphere or path walking, sphere hopping, taking the train across these paths and astrally visiting these spheres as a way to gain esoteric knowledge in in the astral realm. So it's like intentionally trying to send yourself to these spheres, similarly to how some you know, in English cunning magic, they might say, I want to go to the Fiddler's Green, and I want to explore Fiddler's Green. 
uh, a Kabbalist might say, I want to explore the Sephira of Nisach and see what that's like from the astral level and then be able to retain that in my material waking. I've heard a lot about that when people meditate and go to these spheres. Um, and I have learned some of the planetary associations and particularly, I mean, the one I know the most about now is just um, Binah's association with Saturn through you from talking last week about that. Yes, mom, my favorite <laughs> mom. Um, so this is kind of historically complicated because... In a way, you do find these attributions actually in the Sefer Yetzirah. It's not like it completely came out of the Hermetic Kabbalistic tradition, but I think there was, it, it was, astrology and the planets were not necessarily understood the same way to Jews as they would be to Hermeticists. So it does somewhat complicate things like, if you are a hermetic magician and an astrologer and you're used to Saturn being Kronos, the old man who, you know, swallows his children, it can be somewhat of a challenge to say, well, Saturn is actually the mom and Saturn is the womb. Even though if you think about it, there's actually a lot of similarity there where what is Saturn's stomach, if not the boundary enclosure that the children were put under, much like the mother's womb? Mm -hmm. And it is weird that they, sometimes I wonder about that, and it makes me wonder, I wish that we had more historical information, how much stuff was transmitted cross-culturally, and how much is just like weirdly embedded in human consciousness, but there's definitely some ways that it doesn't match up one-to-one. -one. Like, for example, in Kabbalah, Jewish Kabbalah, I still can't think about it this way, actually. But the moon is masculine. Like, the moon is a penis. But I can't. Whoa. I can't think about the moon that way. <laughs> <laughs> what What is the moon associated with? So the moon is basically the sun's penis. So the sun is Tipper. That is a sentence. Yeah, right? Right. <laughs> no, I love I love how Jewish mysticism is very sexual, actually. And I'm teaching a class about this for the Salem Symposium, but like you would be shocked if you were not raised Jewish, which I really was not. So I was shocked. <laughs> it's very sexual. But the sun. Keter, it goes Keter Tifereth, which is the sun, and Keter is like basically the god we can know. It's like if I'm Soph is the unknowable source, then Keter is the knowable source. And then it goes, if you're just going in a straight line down the middle, Tifereth, which is the sun, and that's the prince, the child of Binah, the mother, and Hokmah, the father. And it kind of has both of their attributes. So it makes form and it holds form. Uh, just like kind of what the sun does. It gives us life and it gives us the ability to see, which gave us the ability to create abstract concepts. Uh, so that does fit 
with the astrological tradition. But then it gets a little bit tricky because since the Yesod, the moon is directly below Tifereth on this middle pillar. And so it does kind of look like from the tree, if you envision it this way, it does kind of look like it's dangling under Tifereth. So it's Tifereth's penis. And then it's pointing itself into the earth, Malkuth, the kingdom. And it fills her, fills the kingdom with the dreams of the sun. And so then the kingdom can uh, produce, it's a, the kingdom, the earth is a feminine concept, so it's another womb. But it's uh, the lower waters, if you want to be biblical, as opposed to the upper waters, which is what Bana is. So the earth, Malkuth, is another womb, and the dreams and desires of the sun get, and seed of, of creation and progenation get shot into the womb of the earth, and then the earth can uh, nurture them to life, basically. It's quite the mythos. Yeah, that is very interesting. I'm I'm still stuck on the moon as masculine, though. That I is know. some serious. Pre- I mean, it's a good practice to like backtrack on our beliefs and be like, okay, well, yes. Why do I think this way? I, I've been like in this spiral in my head of like, well, why do I associate the moon with femininity other than like what I've been told? Is there do I have any intuitive piece to that, or is it just? I don't know. It's just been that way. It's weird because it does seem right. And for most, um, most traditions do put their lunar deities as the feminine. Um, of course, we're not talking about deities from a Kabbalistic perspective because Jews believe that these are all just facets of this one, one God. It's not, a, mm-hmm. but, uh, in Hinduism, the moon is also a, uh, man. And he's very, he causes a lot of trouble. He's kind of a trickster. And also, I guess, emotional in this, he's not like emotional, like how we would know what we say the moon is emotional. And we're talking about women's ability to be more open and fluid with our emotions than what society teaches men but again that's just social things we've been all taught Mm -hmm. it's complex but my favorite is that in kabbalah mars is a feminine aspect and i actually think that that's true i hold that one to be true yes yes love it Oh, that, that one I like. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm agreeing because I like it. So. Yes, right, right. Like, disagree <laughs> with you. So does, as a man, dislike. Uh, the moon is not a penis. <laughs> but, Mar- but Mars as a woman, yes, I do like that. <laughs> there's that thing in philosophy, I don't know if you remember learning this in school, where there's, like, things open to interpretation, but people always just pick their favorite interpretation. I don't know that I learned that exact thing, but I know that I do that because yeah. of philosophy, because I realized that we can never prove a lot of these things. So I might as well just believe in what I like. Yeah, totally. So here's like the thought process I've been going through in my head on the side. Also, while you're talking has been, can I pivot between the moon being masculine and the moon being feminine in terms of what I need to do and like okay that's a little bit of chaos magic but at the same time 
the whole gender question comes back in again. And then this, the, my thought process was just reminding me of like how I've like thought about myself in terms of like, can I like tip it back and forth? And then I was like, wait, no, I just am all of those things. And then I started thinking, well, what if everything is all of those things? And I'm like, this is not helpful right now, Anna. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I think uh, I understand why humans have ha- chose at some point in time to start using biological sex as a metaphor for deeper archetypal things but I also think it was a mistake and like maybe we should just see if we can somehow evolve language past that necessity I think it would heal a lot of human pathologies in general um I also believe everybody's queer so if you're not queer I don't believe you happy pride month (laughs) (laughs) um i love learning about queer queer theory in school because it was not always about like gender or sexuality like to queer something is to like blur the lines like you can apply it to so many different things in general oh yeah absolutely and um i think that that is a positive thing like as magicians what else are we trying to do besides queer reality right like, I'm, mm-hmm. I don't know what you're trying to do, but I'm trying to blur the line between what people say isn't possible and what my dreams say I can do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I very much believe that. I very much think the boundary between humans and spirits isn't so much of the same thing either. I, I, mean, I mean, I imagine all the time, like, ghosts or whatever, like whatever type of spirit you want to think of, experiences, you know, their own reality in a way that's very visceral to themselves. Obviously it's not gonna look the same way or feel the same way or be the same way ours is right now for us, but whatever it is to them is real, much more real than I think mine would be to them or another, you know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. so of course, um, I think it's, it's so strange that we have such a separate divide. Like again, today's the solstice day and I was trying to hang out with some members of my spirit court. I like set up a whole dinner thing And then then in my head, I was like, why do I not do this more often? This is, I don't want to like make this a whole, I see you all on a holiday once a year situation. Oh yeah. When I can do this all the time because you're always here. And how sweet of you to always be here. Yeah. That was definitely a tangent we went on, but I think it's important because even thinking of, um, different aspects of any tradition, whether or not people use masculine or feminine or I guess receptive or active, whatever words people use, it is so hard to get away from things that we are socialized to think. Like you're even, you know, the moon is feminine. Um, that I think it's important sometimes to like look at look at things from a differing point of view. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think it's actually ironic for me to say this right after we, I right after I said like, oh, Kabbalah, it's so great because it's a filing cabinet where you can categorize things. You know, that's the Saturn in me that likes order. Uh, but mercurial by nature as well, there's a part of me that knows like tr- attempting to turn things into binaries 
does kind of encase them and limit them from true freedom of expression. And mm. in Kabbalah, that's that's necessary. They view it as necessary. It's like the source happened and then the source decided to like move its will and its unbridled will, which is Hokmah, would just engulf everything and be in constant motion forever and never stop unless it had Binah to create the enclosure. So, I mean, it's hard for me because I want ultimate freedom. I want it and I don't want to limit myself and say, well, I can only do these types of spells on Friday nights, you know, because that's when the planetary timing is right. And I hate that. So frustrating. But I also feel like I'm learning more to say, okay, if I am just unbridled will, unbridled fire, I burn myself, I burn everything around me, and I can't actually create anything because I'm always a step ahead of myself. Mm-hmm. And I need these, even though it upsets me, like I want, I'm, I'm non-binary, you know, what, why do I want to gender my spheres when I don't even want to gender myself? But there is something to be said about understanding categories and their place to know that they exist and don't exist at the same time is somehow that sweet spot that you have to sit at in order to experience gnosis, I think. Yeah, it's kind of like learning to toggle between the two. Like if you have a bunch of, I mean, even in our daily lives, right? Like we have all these tasks and things that we set out for ourselves to do that we think we have to get done that seem ultimately separate. But there, there comes like a delicate balance of knowing when to and when not to combine certain things, even though they all exist at once within the container of our lives. Yes. It's like, could I make a kitchen, like, what are, what are they called? Whatever is left over in my fridge, stir fry? But like, should I, should I, like, let's contemplate actually what's in there and ask ourselves if these things actually work together, right? Yeah. Should I put ketchup on my pancakes? No. Could I? Yes. Freaks me out that some people actually like that. <laughs> I didn't know that. I mean, I'm sure some people do that. I didn't, I couldn't think of anyone in particular. That just happened to be what I thought of in the moment. <laughs> do you know people who do? Yeah, and put them on their egg, ketchup on their eggs. No, thank you. I feel like ketchup on eggs makes more sense than ketchup on pancakes. Like, I could understand that because, like, hot sauce on eggs makes sense to me. I think it depends what type of can- pancake, I guess. Like a sweet blueberry pancake or chocolate. Oh my gosh, please don't put ketchup on that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I know somebody that does, but I know people probably do and I'm calling them out for it (laughs) yeah I I feel like there's something there's a Kabbalistic lesson about that that's kind of similar and it's one of the first things that you learn when you read uh the Sefer Yetzira if you're reading Arya Kaplan's commentary which I highly recommend Arya Kaplan's commentary of the Sefer Yetzira 
but one of the very first things you learn is about this interrelationship between Bina and Hokba and this idea of like where I go when I meditate and like where I am my baseline normal getting my chores done self and how those are it's you both times but they're both kind of separate and then you can't really exist healthily in either one of those states perpetually so in kabbalah they talk they talk about running and returning and it's this idea of going into the meditative state putting yourself in hokmah consciousness uh and then allowing yourself to return you aren't meant to just go to that space where nothing everything is unbridled and just exists there that's not enlightenment it's too much it'll burn you out and it's why uh in the jewish mythology kabbalah is considered dangerous uh because it can entice you to stay and weirdly enough sorry ancestors this reminds me of fey too because it's like mm -hmm. how long do you want to stay in the fairy world you have to kind of make sure that you remember to come back or else you can untether and you can fall into madness which is not gnosis and there's a fine line but i do think that it is about learning how to find yourself happy and stable in both realms and being able to come and go both places without chaining yourself to either i'm thinking of with kabbalah is it advised that people are tapped into both like at the same time like this idea of having one foot in one foot out or is it finding a fluidity to move between these places completely does that make sense yes i mean i think that that depends on with i think this is something else i talked a little bit about um on celeste's Patreon when I was talking about Kabbalah there, but there are like a million different schools of Kabbalah and they don't all agree on each other. Okay, maybe I am hyperbole, but not a million, but a lot. <laughs> and um, the one that like the, I know that like some people are like, okay, I just want to travel the spheres. But I think that the main point is uh, Devapiv, which is to cleave. And it's basically the Jewish equivalent of the hieroscamos. So the idea is that I, living in Malkut, my physical self in Malkut, is the bride because this is my feminine receptive uh, emanation, the form in which whatever. And the bridegroom in Tifereth is like your higher, it's like it is your higher self, it is you, but it's like the fourth dimensional you, which makes it kind of, or like sixth dimensional you, which makes it hard for you to like identify with that thing and like see it as you. So instead they talk about it like a marriage, like your, your, you in the kingdom, marry your solar self, this you that exists uh, beyond the physical, and it is the solar self is in direct reception with divine light. So it has a clearer perspective of 
basically the, the idea and what modern magicians have or ceremonial magicians have run with is the marriage of the solar self in Tifereth is basically once you do that you like know and understand your true will because your angel tells you your holy guardian angel tells you or like your prince who you've married if we're talking about it from a jewish kabbalistic perspective and this is again what i am talking about in my class uh, but we're examining it through the song of songs but it's basically the idea that you marry your earthly self with your higher self who is also more complex. It's like, you will never be able to understand it completely as you because it's so different from you, but it is you. And then through that marriage, you can now cross the abyss, which is where the fall happened. This idea of like Adam Kadman used to be wholly united, the solar and lunar selves, the masculine and female, feminine were both inside of him, but through the fall, the feminine aspect, or Eve, I guess, fell down to Malkuth. And so the idea is to rejoin those two things so that you can basically, I don't want to sound like EA coding, but it's like basically so you can become a living God, because when you do that marriage, then you are now able to create and make manifest in the physical world in the same way that Hashem can make manifest. And you can now, you know, perform miracles or do magic, however you want to call it, um, and affect the physical world. And then you can continue studying and cross the abyss and path work up to Binan Hokmah, which is technically you're not able to path work there until after you have achieved this union. And once you do that, then you gain like the wisdom of Saturn up in Bina, you know, and then you can come back and you can teach that to others if you feel like it. I guess it depends on what your true will is because some tr people's true will is gonna be, they just wanna sit in the woods and meditate. And some people's true will is going to be they want to write it all down in a book and try to impart that knowledge onto others. But that would be, I think, the main purpose is to achieve the solar union with yourself, not self, and then use that union to do magic and gain wisdom. <laughs> Who doesn't want that? Do you think it's possible for people to kind of accidentally tap in and out of that God sense. I don't, I don't know how to like word what I'm trying to say. Yes. It's, it's one of those things where this is very visual for me, like talking about the, the tree of life or Kabbalah in general, because I just see where everything is in my head as opposed to knowing the names and the numbers. So, and this is a podcast and that's not helpful to be visual right now, <laughs> <laughs> but that idea of like, it's like those two things line up in my head and then you get these times that I think people can think of of um when they essentially perform miracles in their own life and then they fall out of that and then they can't figure out what happened or how they got there do you think that is connected to that becoming a god idea or is that something else oh yeah I mean I I totally think that people can have momentary 
I do not think that people can wholly unite. It's like, again, I'm going to use fairy as an analogy where like some people know that they have a relationship with a certain kind of fae and it's kind of been like put to them that they could make a pact and they could have a marriage, but that would like come with some benefits as well as like some taboos that they would have to keep, you know, and that spirit and you can like accidentally have these moments where the love is just so deep and you had a trance you just were able to slip into that trance and you guys connected and you had like a short little moment of love making you know my quickie but it's not the uh long-term marriage bed where everything is stable and you can tap into that at at, at whim does that make sense yeah would this um this union between this other self or an HGA, depending on what tradition you're coming from, is that equivalent in your experience to the idea of the fetch or is that something else? See, that's what I've been trying to establish and what I've been trying, you know, to figure out just in my own meditations and explorations. And I do think that it's something else just because it's like, when I think about the solar self, uh, it like really is me. Um, like I am, my mind can only experience the present moment and me in this bubble of moment of nowness that Bina has kind of confined me in. But in reality, I am already a fourth dimensional being. Everything that I am going to do or that I have done all exist in this like elongated fourth dimensional form. And then maybe that thing is only an extension of a fifth dimensional thing. And then that thing is only an extension of a sixth dimensional thing. So somewhere along these dimensional planes, the solar self is me that's but but it's so removed that it seems like it's separate and plus there's probably a bunch of other things that stem off of it besides just me uh and so i think that the fetch concept is like it's really something different Mm -hmm. i mean i pretty frequently have this feeling that there's another me inside of me that kind of like leaves and does its own thing or that I can ask it to go do things, but it's not like a part of my spirit core. It's just me again. But so I don't know if that fits some of what you're talking about. It's something that I've been trying to figure out in my own self-exploration. Reminds me more of like the astral self, um, the yesod self, which is my dream self. Hmm when is and that self does seem to be same same but different from me when I'm awake like she makes different decisions than me she cares about different things than me she can go to places that I can't go to sometimes she looks completely different than me you know yeah um because I remember listening to one of your casts when you were saying like 
oh, like I view myself astrally and in the astral, like my skin is blue. I actually mm-hmm. have a similar thing. Like my me, not me, my dream self or my who I am and my thoughts usually would have like green skin and like a hairstyle that like my hair, I could have never even make it look like that. I don't know why that is me in the dream. Uh, But I don't, it's not one for one what I'm talking about. Like the sixth, your sixth dimensional solar self is maybe that other thing is still birthed from this. But I almost feel like we are birthed from the dream self, especially if you're thinking about it Kabbalistically. And I mean, I know it's not meant to be a ladder that you climb. They really, I go, I say that so often in my own uh, writings about Kabbalah, but I still feel like for some reason, like Malkuth is below the dream world. Malkuth is below Yesod. Maybe it's just because dreams are fantastic and that life seems cooler than the one I live in reality. (laughs) (laughs) When you say it's not a ladder that we're supposed to climb, maybe this is my, my brain wanting to categorize everything too. It is really hard for me not to think about it like that. Well, especially because visually it looks like that, right? Yeah. It looks like a tree. Yep. That grows from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Um, so the best metaphor for this is actually from another book that I would recommend. And it's way more fun than Aria Kaplan's book. (laughs) Uh, It's uh, the Promethea comics. Have you ever read those by Alan Moore? I have not read those, but I read Watchmen. I read V for Vendetta. Other Alan Moore. <laughs> You've got to read Promethea. It's amazing. It's basically his how to do magic comic. There's okay. a lot of good info there, but there's a whole arc where Promethea, the heroine, goes and she travels through all the spheres. And when she's first about to go do that, she pulls up to a train station. And the tree of life, instead of being a ladder, is presented like a subway tram. Uh, map basically so it's like yes there are paths that you have to take to get from point a to point b but it's not that you're climbing it's that this is just these are all different roads and like yeah i have to like go through maybe i have to go through tifereth to get to chesed but i could also go a different route and i could go through nasach instead uh, and it's not that one is below the other. It's just that one may be closer to me locationally. How would you get onto a subway platform then in theory at all? Like, How would you get there in the first place? I mean, how do we get anywhere when we try to astral? <laughs> I don't know how you first, there's, there's something about the way that gnosis or trance allows our consciousness to kind of switch over from being a te- it's and I like to view it as like density like Malkuth is very dense because everything is physical so there's a lot of heavy mass in this sphere and um that it may be that you have to somehow 
through meditation or tr inducing trance, however you do it, I tend to dance or sing. That really helps me just get out of my body and become ecstatic. And suddenly I'm less dense. I'm not as tethered to Malkuth anymore. So I can sit and I can close my eyes and I can astral, right? So I don't think it's, I think that's how you get on the platform is by doing some type of activity that deep, uh, makes you, makes your etheric body less dense. It's the best way I could describe it. So that makes sense to me, like getting there like that, like into trance, like to experience the spheres. Mm -hmm. So what I'm confused about is does the Kabbalistic system encompass like the entirety of existence? Oh yeah. I mean, it's okay. the manifest and the unmanifest. So yeah, that's what I thought. So and our human and our physical bodies are in Malkuth. Yes. I think my brain is like trying to separate for some reason the entirety of existence and how do we get there in the first place? Mm -hmm. And I'd realized I've like created a like what was before the Big Bang question in my head that you cannot <laughs> answer for me. So that was <laughs> that oh was where I was God. going. One day, may I be a good enough ma magician to travel back and let you know what was there. So that's the dream. <laughs> I definitely try to not make a habit of asking my guests literally impossible questions, but I think I've asked you a couple of them today. <laughs> That's okay because I'm, if I'm not, I think about metaphysics all the time. So I'm very used to those types of questions. Mm -hmm. um, I will say what I think that you're trying to wrap your head around is like, in what way does Kabbalah make room for the unmanifested? Like, what is that? meant to look like um so like nesach venus it's not physical beauty it's like the concept of beauty it's not physical pleasure it's like the concept of what I, desire is so when promethea goes to nesach she's like swimming in ocean in an ocean of all of her feelings you know, but it's not a real ocean. It's a metaphorical ocean. And it's just like this concept that feelings can even be. Whereas like Hode, Mercury, that's like the first word, the first thought, uh, the first spoken sound, but it's still not like a language, like we're actually writing a language, we're actually having a sentence. It's like the idea that that could even be a thing that people could have is birthed there. And then like, even above that, um, Jupiter, the, the plant, the sphere that's connected to Jupiter is Hesed. And that one is like laws. And we're not talking about laws like ACAB. It's laws like gravity, the law of gravity, the law of duality, uh, the law of, you know, the pillars that from which all other abstract concepts could even be drawn from. And then 
Mars, Gavora, would be the harsh force that makes sure that these things follow those laws. Uh, it's the mechanics in the universe that make the law of gravity work. So in Jupiter and Hesed would be, oh, I can have gravity. And Mars would be like, okay, particles, you better do your job because Hesed wants <laughs> gravity. Does that make sense? Yeah, that actually helps explain it um, a lot more. I was trying to think of like an origin point for everything, but what you've explained is like, no, like different things because everything is in a filing cabinet originate from different spots. Yep, exactly. For Nesach to even know that it is desire, there has to be these like laws about how human emotions work. Uh, but those are ambiguous. They're more vague because that was created before there were words is actually my suspicion about why it's very hard to talk about emotions. Um, so in some ways, it does seem like it happens sequentially. That is a really interesting point. I really like that about how it's hard to verbalize emotions because they are created before words. Yeah, that just feels true, doesn't it? Yeah, it feels like what it is we try to express with words isn't true like ever with emotions. So I oftentimes don't even try. It's not that I don't want to lie sometimes. It's like I am more capable of withholding information than I am crafting something else. So if someone asks me how I feel directly, because I've avoided talking about my feelings, but someone asks me directly, it's like I cannot tell people that I'm fine. Like I have to try to tell some aspect of truth to it. And then it never fully encapsulates how I feel, which is oftentimes like content in the moment, aware of doom later, not anxious right now, but upset on a deep level always. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, I, I feel that. Um, I know for me, I will word vomit. And I will just go on and on and on, try to explain the same thing in like 20 different ways until I'm satisfied that the other person potentially has a sliver of understanding. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's the same thing that you're talking about because it's like, if I haven't, it's, it's so much emotional labor, we should really all be doing this, but sitting down and trying to like suss out our feelings and try to... In, I wouldn't say intellectualize is not the right word. You should never intellectualize your feelings, but to try to name them because by naming them, now you have power over them and you can do something with it, which you can't do anything with it when they remain ambiguous and unnamed. Mm -hmm. They kind of can control you. And then it's a lot of emotional labor to do that. So when people put you on the spot and you haven't been doing that work yourself, it's like, ah, ah, I can't, I haven't thought of a name. Uh, and then I, for one, panic. So it would help our ability to connect with the other. So if someone were to use or to work with the Kabbalah, let's say to learn to name their emotions, so they would try to take the subway station from, oh my gosh, I forgot how you pronounced it, the emotional center. Uh, Nasach. Nasach to Hog then. Yes. And like what I would even, hold on, I'm, I'm, I do not, 
I know a lot of the correspondence, but I don't know every correspondence, so I had to look something up. Like you don't but, have anything memorized ever? Uh, I wish I did <laughs> one day. But okay, so there are paths between all the spheres, connecting all the spheres, and they're related to letters, as, and those letters are related to tarot cards. So I would say if you're trying to learn how to name your emotions and, and figure out your emotional, give yourself the ability to figure out what's really causing you emotional pain, you're, no one's going to like what I'm about to say. But the card that is in between Hode and Nasach is the tower. So maybe you might want to sit and contemplate the tower and like that energy instead of saying, well, because if it's an issue that deals with both Hode and Yesod, then you're going to want to go to the path that connects the both and try to walk both those paths and see what that wisdom is. And I guess how the tower could help you with that is like help you destroy your your false intellectualizations about your emotions like that could be a tower moment or it could be the realization that this emotion was petty and that you've been carrying a feeling of you know guilt and maybe you've really started to identify with that guilt and then suddenly through the tower, you realize that guilt was a false foundation. And that because you've learned how to put your words onto the feeling and say, oh, I was feeling guilty, but here's why I didn't need to feel guilty. Crash tower of self who blamed themselves for something and now rebuild as a person who doesn't have that guilt. Wow. I mean, I think that's, I didn't know that there was cards that connected like that. That is, that makes so much sense to me. Yep. And that's how I learned how to read tarot. Thanks, Kabbalah. <laughs> what are, um, what are some of the other connecting cards between emanations? Okay. So, um, there is between Gavora and Chesed, there is strength. So this would be Jupiter and Mars. And that one, I think I was talking a little bit about um, that chesed would be where the laws are made. And then Gavora is the, the basically the mom, mama, who enforces those laws. Um, and strength connects the two because if you are, if you, this is just a thought exercise, but I would assume because it takes control of my desires in order to uphold the law and not fall into static and like deharmonize myself. If I engorge in my desires and I let the, then the lion is going to have to come after me. That Gavoric inter energy of Mars is going to have to shake me up. But if I can uphold the law and be honorable and act in accordance with my true will and do no harm to others and, well, I'm sorry, not infringe on anybody else's true will is what I mean by do no harm to others. But, you know, if, if I can balance that energy and have control over my desires, then I can eat of all the gifts that 
that life has to give without the lion devouring me. This is really sinking in now, like with this tarot piece. This is something that the Kabbal- the Jewish Kabbalists obviously did not uh, teach. This came mm-hmm. out of, I actually want to read about the Jewish mystic who inspired Alphaeus Levy. But unfortunately, as of today, I still don't know a lot about that guy. So from my knowledge, a lot of it starts with Alphaeus Levy. And he was like, I really love Kabbalah. It's really cool. But I'm not Jewish. And also, I hate Jews, (laughs) which is historically true. Um, So I'm going to to he basically sat and did what I just did except he thought to himself which this letter means x and this card means y so I'm going to try and find which cards and letters go well together so that's this is all just stuff that really smart um contemplative magicians put together and even though I try to stick with the Jewish Kabbalistic system as much as possible, just because my ancestors are really finicky about how much Hermetic Kabbalah I bring into my practice. That's my own cross to bear. It is not, other people probably don't have ancestors that care that much, but the tarot one is the only one that I, I, I hard like ancestors. I don't give, I don't give an F because this makes sense to me. And I read my cards like this and it works. So even if y'all don't like it, Elphias Levy was onto something. So if you pulled the tower and a spread or in any any context, you would think of the connection between hot and oh my god, I forgot the pronunciation again. <laughs> I know. I, okay, I hope that this is. Am I allowed to be PG thirteen? Yes. <laughs> okay, so the way that I remember Nessach is it's like nutsack. Serious. Nessach. Nutsack. Nessach. Okay, I'm actually going to remember that. I know. Sorry. (laughs) But it's true. That's a good uh, way to remember it. It's how I learned it. But anyways, the answer to that would be no. Um, The way... And I don't know how other people read tarot, you know, who do Kabbalistic readings. Um, They might... For me personally, I have tried to learn every possible correspondence that a card might have. Kabbalistic, astrological, what did Crowley say? What did Wait say? What does Biddy Tarot say? <laughs> you know, Biddy just- Terry. always have to check there. Gods, yeah. Any, uh, I, I hope people know I meant that last one ironically. But yeah, just, you know, learn all the different correspondence. So like I may know, you know, this card can maybe be about the spring or it can. Okay, so so the tower, for example, the tower is. um, It's Mars. It is the connecting point between Hode and Nisach. It has a whole mythological story about enlightenment and, and all of that. And I don't remember off the top of my head what 
the Hebrew letter is, but it's got a Hebrew letter that means something as well. I want to say mouth. It's peh, and it means mouth. Thanks, brain. Make me look <laughs> dumb and then smart. That's the way to trick them. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so you know all these things and you know all the different myth stories and and metaphors that people have told you about the tower and what it might mean and then the rest is intuition so the first thing you have to do is learn all the correspondence and then the next thing you have to do is trust spirit that spirit is going to go into your filing your filing cabinet of what the tower all the different things that the tower could mean and ideally spirit should like move the correspondent that they want you to interpret it as up to the front of your mind and that's mm -hmm. basically how i read where i'll be like i'll read the same card the same way seven different times and then in the eighth time i'll just know like no it means this this time I have a client that gets a little bit annoyed by that sometimes until we like talk about it thoroughly. She'll be like, oh, I thought that card meant blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, well, that's one of its meanings. But that's why tarot, do you really think that tarot could talk to us with only 72 words? That's not enough words. Yeah. This is very similar to how I read as well. So that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, so I mean, you could take the time to learn these correspondence and you may find that, you know, one in every three readings it comes up, but it might not even change your reading style even that much. I guess it just depends on, I think, I think personally the tarot, it's about your spiritual court and how your spiritual court likes to talk as well as I do believe that Dex have their own spirits and their own personalities as well so yeah I stand behind that I have one deck that I use just for one member of my court um likes to talk through it and it's very finicky about other people talking through it yeah so I was like fine you can have it okay my my deck that reads so well for my clients won't read for me <laughs> just mm -hmm. it's like no no I don't do you <laughs> I only do other people that's my Rider Waite Smith deck. Yeah. Me. How dare you? I put I'd use you more than any other deck and you won't <laughs> talk to me. <laughs> it's it's hard for me personally to get myself to do a reading for myself. I have to be at a certain level of confusion that's like beyond the point that I think I should even go to the cards for. But that's how I'll end up there. And then I'll pull cards and I'm like, I can't even do this because I my brain cannot trust my own selection of what's coming up to the front. So yeah. I'll end up with Lenormand or um, Eaching instead, oftentimes. Now I totally feel that. Uh, I'm glad that you have other divinatory ways that you feel comfortable reading for yourself. I usually, if it's super serious, just go to someone else. Can you help me? That too. Yeah. Um, I also do that. Because <laughs> I know this is when you first started reading were you kind of like i don't know if this really works i don't know i'm not psychic i just like know what these things mean i, I it's not in, in intuition like i just know what the cards mean i believe yeah, that's, that that's exactly how i was i threw my first deck i ever bought in the garbage actually nah, I yeah i gave my no first one away um 
ironically. And then I went back and I bought the same deck later. But um, this is how I knew that I was actually picking up on something psychically was I would pull readings for myself and I would stare at these motherfuckers like I had no fucking idea what they meant. Like, blank. My mind would just be blank. I would be like, I don't know what eight of discs means. What? You, what? Mm-hmm. No. Uh, which is ironic because it's like, of course I do know. But there was, I almost felt like that was spirit being like, you're used to us giving you the reading. We're not giving you a reading right now because your brain is too messed up about all this. So go to someone else or come back when you're calm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the feeling for sure. I think sometimes it's a, an exercise of, um, for me of like learning who, who, who do I trust at this point in my life? And that in itself is like an eye opener to like, even who would I even ask for something like this? Oh yeah. Yeah. There are some things I don't, like asking other people but that kind of stuff I kind of just if I feel like I can't ask another reader and I can't get it through the cards then I ask to get it in dream or just to have Mm. it settle in my subconscious and and suddenly I'm like embodying it without even realizing it spirit does that a lot for me maybe it's Saturn (laughs) Saturn Saturn is very cool Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And thank you again for recording a second episode. Technically, again, this is the second one we've recorded. I've enjoyed both chats, even though this this one will get uploaded. Yeah, I enjoyed both as well. This one was very fun. I will say I was a little bit more in my element this time. So I think that everything happened for a reason. Totally. Well, this is the part of the podcast where you definitely plug all your stuff, especially you were mentioning you're teaching a class soon. Oh, yeah. So I'm I'm teaching a class that's on Jewish Kabbalah and sex magic and solar rituals. And it's basically going to be an exploration of the Song of Songs and just how Jewish Kabbalah sex magic works. And if that is interesting to you, I'm teaching it at the Salem Symposium, the Salem Witch Fest. I think it's Salem Symposium on Instagram. And that'll be in August. You can find that in my bio, which is Instagram at Saturn Rocks. I also have a patron where I run a monthly uh kabbalah articles about the fundamentals of kabbalah so if you're interested in learning kabbalah 101 from me that's really where i'm doing it these days and yeah saturnbox.com for readings i think that those are all my things great i will have all those things listed in the description of this episode in case anyone would like an easy link to them if you are not sure who I am, my name is, again, Mana Aylin. You can find me at mothmana.com for a gallery of my digital art, information on readings, and links to other things. Instagram is at mothmanatarot, Twitter, Mana Aylin, and Patreon with bonus episodes of the podcast, as well as other fun things, is going to be patreon.com slash mothmana. So thanks again, Michaela, for being here. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.